0: Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast. I'm Virginia Stanley. I'm Lainey Mays. And Essie Ramirez. We are the library marketing team at HarperCollins Publishers. Join us every week as we present buzzworthy books through author interviews, conversations with editors, and expert opinions from librarians like you. Enjoy the show.
1: Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it
2: out! Book Bus! HarperCollins Book Bus! Brought
1: to you by Library
0: Love Fest! Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Library Love Fest podcast. This is Lainey. We have another episode of Editors Unedited. We have a, a new editor to introduce to you all. We have Jennifer Baker, who's senior editor at Amistad. Hi, Jennifer.
1: Hello. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you so much. And you have a returning guest to the podcast to introduce an interview, so I'm going to hand it over to you.
1: Thanks so much, Lainey. Hello, listeners. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. And I am very, very happy to welcome Clyde W. Ford, and I'm going to give you the truncated bio because he's accomplished so much in his lifetime, uh, but you could go to his website and just find out all the things about Clyde. He is the author of more than a dozen works of fiction and nonfiction, and most recently, one of his books with Amistad was Think Black, which got many starred reviews and critical acclaim. His upcoming book, Of Blood and Sweat, comes out with Amistad on April 5th, 2022. And he is a speaker for the Humanities Washington and an affiliate of the NEH. And he's also the director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Library Publishing Project at HarperCollins. So welcome, Clyde.
2: Thanks, Jennifer, for having this conversation with me.
1: But I love speaking to people. And I love speaking to you. And I love this book. So I was very glad to inherit it from Tracy Sherrod, who I believe you worked with her on
2: Think Black, yes? Yes, my last book was HarperCollins, Think Black. And, you know, I really appreciated how supportive librarians were of me for that book, Think Black. Lee would receive the Washington Center for the Book Award the uh, Seattle Public Library in concert with the governor's office here in the state of Washington and so it was quite an honor to, Honor and libraries were behind that. Uh, the King County Seattle Public Library System, KCLS has uh, for several years voted me as a literary lion here in the state so libraries have been incredibly important for me libraries have always been something, an institution that I've appreciated. So I look look forward to doing this podcast.
1: We do love librarians. (laughs) like Unsung heroes, librarians and booksellers and warehouse workers, so many people that are part of the publishing ecosystem. So thank you all for the work you do and your love of books. Uh, We wouldn't be here without you. So Clyde, do we want to talk about a fun fact? Was that Originally, a blood and sweat was called freedom dues, and you talk about freedom dues within the introduction. And uh, so, would you like to kind of jump off about that in terms of what are freedom dues?
2: Yes, and so uh, originally it was called freedom dues, and of course, uh, one of the things I love about Tracy and and this book in the beginning, before you took over, uh, she said to me, you know, that 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 title makes sense, but it's not. Uh, an attention grabber, and so she and I put our heads together and came up with a new title of Blood and Sweat. But the original title, Freedom Dues, went back to an idea that was really very central to the history of uh, of America, and in particular, colonial America, at which time workers, not enslaved people, but indentured servants, came to work with this idea. That the time they spent in indentures, and just to explain for those who may not know what indentures are, indentures were a system of working in which you were essentially obligated for seven, nine, even as many as 14 years to a particular employer in colonial America. That as a result of the service, you rendered to your, basically your master is what they were called in those days and for providing a basis upon which he and his family garnered wealth. At the end of your time of service, you would then be given the implements that would allow you to create a basis of wealth on your own. And in those days, wealth was based on land. So freedom dues often uh, involved a grant of land. It involved a grant of seed. It involved the grant of, of uh, farming implements, but there was this idea, very well-tested, even in early American courts, that those who worked for the wealth of others would at one point be given the opportunity to create wealth themselves. And I thought, you know, this is a really wonderful, I think, idea that speaks in many ways to the, the promise of America Yet when you look at the history. It was enslaved people who also worked for the wealth of others, who never really received their freedom dues. Uh, In early colonial America, often um, um, African descendants, uh, people of African descent, went to court to sue for their freedom dues. And in several instances, they were actually successful. Often, they were not. But it felt to me like this is a wonderful metaphor or a theme in which to look at early, the early history of the United, of the America actually as a lens to look at the early history of this country in terms of what could reasonably be expected by those who generated the wealth of others.
1: Yeah, and you have a line in the introduction, thus freedom in early America was a privilege that derived from slavery. And you you really, encapsulate so much of this in terms of the history, but how prevalent, as you mentioned, it is to this day. Like for instance, a lot of conversation, at least on the internet, is around canceling student debt. And I can't not see of blood and sweat tied into that conversation. You know what I mean? Because we're still talking about wealth and who retains it and how, especially Black and Brown communities are withheld from these institutions to be able to gain wealth, gain information, and who's continually benefiting from it in terms of our labor, in terms of our resources, in terms of all of those things.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think it's one thing that uh, the discussion of the history of race and racial equity and racial justice in this country does not really get to, or many people don't understand. And that is just what you said, the idea that in this country, um, freedom is predicated. This is so strange. Freedom is predicated on the enslavement or enshacklement of others. And, and, And historically, let me just give you the clearest example of this, and the clearest example really comes from early American history, and and I think we can talk about how it's related uh, to present-day situations like um, uh, uh, student debt, but in early American history, the so-called founding fathers, almost all of them were planters, uh, certainly are credited with having lost the ideals about freedom and liberty and equality And yet the fact is that unless they had enslaved individuals to work their plantations, most of whom were tobacco plantations, that they would not have had the time to contemplate the lofty ideals which found their way into the founding documents of this country. In other words, Their freedom or their luxury to contemplate liberty and eternity, uh, equality and fraternity, that luxury, that privilege was because they enslaved people to do the hard work which allowed them the lifestyle of luxury to contemplate these lofty ideals. And that's such a clear example of how freedom is predicated on the enslavement of others' And you bring up, for example, the idea of student debt, and there once again, I mean you have students shackled with debt which dogs them through most of their lives while they are simply trying to take the steps which would allow them to gain a foothold to build the wealth which they then might be able to pass down through their families so it's it 's a very um uh, a comparable situation, and again, the discussion doesn't happen about what the basis of all of this is. Look, if you're wealthy in this country, you don't have to worry about going to school. You don't have to worry about uh, what the cost it takes to pay for an education, and therefore, the first steps towards building wealth are, are given to you. If you have come out of school owing sixty, seventy, eighty, a hundred thousand dollars or more, when? Do you ever get to the point that you're actually then making wealth that you could pass along to your children, to their children? That's the challenge of really, I think, America living up to its promise, is that we have to unshackle the ideas of freedom from enslavement, whether it is to debt or historically, whether it was to the enslavement of individuals for their labor.
1: And so, in *Of Blood and Sweat* encapsulates as a book, as a tome that is really, to me, a testament to what Amistad has done and continues to do. Is I believe in legacy titles, and I absolutely feel as though *Of Blood and Sweat* is one of those legacy titles that will constantly be in reference, will constantly be in conversation with the national, global conversations. It will be something like we said librarians will gravitate to educators and how do you come to creating a book of this magnitude because it is not a small thing I know you, you don't you don't cover a broad swath of history as in 400 500 years but you do look at a very key segment of time that absolutely proves the point and like we said ties to current conversation.
2: Well, first of all, that's a great question, Jennifer. Thank you for asking it. And uh, I can tell you that uh, when I began working on the book, it was early 2020. Fortunately, George Floyd was still with us then. Uh, Breonna Taylor was still with us. But as I continued to work on the book, I saw all of these events happening. And I thought to myself, what is it? that creates a country in which the murder of innocent young Black men and women is acceptable? What is it that creates a country in which the history of racial inequity and racial injustice is acceptable? And you know, they often say, it's often said, if you want to learn something, write a book. And in Many regards, this book is about me educating myself on the history that we find we are still wrestling with to this day. I will say also that um, this was not new ideas for me. Uh, Actually, in writing the proposal for the book and beginning to write the book, Jennifer, I went back. Uh, I hate to say it because it ages me and dates me almost 50 years to a master's, excuse me, a thesis I wrote at Wesleyan University when I was a young man. And this was before the days when there were black studies uh, uh, programs. I majored in history and mathematics. And as part of the history curriculum, I essentially had to write my own program. Uh, And one of the things that I was very interested in then, was how did we as a country come about to settle on the institution of slavery in the first, well, from certainly 1619 straight through to 1865? How did that happen? Why did that happen? What were the decisions that were made? What were the roads that were taken and what were the roads that weren't taken? I had wrestled with that question for, for many years, and here I saw in writing of Blood and Sweat, an opportunity to really get at the latest information, the latest historical data, uh, the latest um, scholarly information on why that was. That seemed to me to be critical, not only for my own understanding, but to our, the present day discourse and discussion, as I said, on racial inequity, racial injustice, uh, police brutality, I wanted to get at the the, the 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 basis of all this. I didn't just want to accept the current arguments, even those that I agreed with. And I'll give you a really good example of that. In terms of uh, police brutality, it's often said by those who are opposing it, as I do, that police brutality goes back to slave patrols, and often it's cited that those were the slave patrols instituted in the 1700s. Well. I didn't just want to accept that as face value. And boy, am I glad I didn't, because what I discovered in working on this book, it goes back way further than the 1700s. It's actually police brutality can find its roots in institutions that came over to the colonies from England in the 1200s. And the opportunity to do that level of research and study and discourse and write about it in a way that I hope everyone will be able to read and understand, that was just an incredible gift for me. So in writing this book... Really, I woke up every day thinking, this is so wonderful that I get the opportunity because of Tracy's vision at Amistad to actually do this, to write a book, to research a book, to work on a book that not only educates me, but may be a basis for enhancing the public discourse about these really, really important issues that we're dealing with as a country and really around the world as well too right now.
1: And there's also something I want to talk about because there's, you have a lot of poignant lines throughout of Blood and Sweat. And that's a testament also to how you as a person who's toggled between fiction and nonfiction kind of blend how you built voice between genres into a very accessible book that is not, you know, overly dense or, you know, overly... Trady, you know, industry terms, you know, those for the most part. But you, right. you mentioned towards the end, I think it's chapter 15, where you talked about Lincoln and the end of the Civil War, and like, what now, and the line, ambivalence has consequences. And talking about what's next, what are we going to do, what were the plans, what are the, where's the ingenuity and the innovation and actually bringing things together and and giving what you promised. And that's, again, part of continual discussions that we're having today, you know, especially early this year, right? I mean, Jesus, (laughs) you know, like seeing the transition of a new guard, so to speak, and being hopeful as we should be but also recognizing that there is something so entrenched in how this nation has been colonized that it is not going away without some serious intentionality to change it. Um, And all that's to say, that's a big compliment again. And just speaking to the fact that this is going to be a book that proliferates in our, our national convo for years to come. But it seems like you didn't also want to solve a problem. You know what I mean? Like sometimes I think, a lot of people are looking to books like these, especially reference books to say, and this is how we move on. And this is how we, you know, get ourselves by the bootstraps, people, and get to the streets and whatnot. But but that doesn't seem, and forgive me, I don't want to put words in your mouth, to be the case here. Like you said, you wanted to educate people and you're through it, you're educating yourself. But that doesn't necessarily mean, and here's a 10-step guide on how we get there.
2: Yeah, Again, thanks for that question. You said a lot, and I just want to acknowledge and appreciation for you recognizing that uh, I really do try to write creative nonfiction, and that means that there's a basis of fact, but it's not just a dry presentation of that fact. And yes, you're absolutely right. As a fiction author, uh, I am very sensitive to voice. And I do try to bring voice into the writing so that people can engage with a book like this about history in a way that makes them feel like, wow, we're reading about the actual experience as opposed to dry facts. I don't believe history has to be dry and has to be just devoid of voice. And one of the things you'll know when I say in the book, and I did, is that I really try to tell the story of individual people. And through them, and through their life experience, to bring and open a broader conversation, so I do think that that is um, you know really, really important. I mean, the other thing you mentioned also is you know here's a book that's written in a way that reflects the idea that things aren't going to change without actually providing or saying this is the remedy to how you make change happen. Listen, change happens not because you yell and scream at somebody, but because you provide a basis of information that allows reasonable people to come to reasonable conclusions, even if they disagree. I don't mind disagreement. What I do mind is when people disagree on the facts that have actually taken place. Disagreement on how you solve a problem, I think that's a healthy part of a democratic discussion. Disagreement on the historical basis of fact, that's a challenge for me. And I give you, again, a really, really good example of that. As you know, Jennifer, critical race theory, there are a lot of people who are opposed to that. Now, the truth of the matter is critical race theory isn't even about history. But critical race theory has actually been tied into anything related to telling the American story outside of the typical narrative that uh, you know, most people would like to have. Well, the truth of the matter is, and I'm not just saying, it's actually in their own words. Let's take Thomas Jefferson, for example. Jefferson, obviously uh, considered a great American. Yes, he was a, a holder of enslaved individuals, but even more important, Jefferson used enslaved individuals as mortgage to pay off his debt. I didn't just decide that that's the case. It's in his own words. You can go to the historical documents and find that, and what he did was actually to create a system which then became the basis Of an American financial institution of mortgage-backed debts, the first mortgage-backed debts, the first backing for those mortgages were the physical bodies of enslaved people. I think that is a really important historical fact to put into the conversation about wealth in this country, about racial equity and racial justice. Now, how do we deal with that fact in terms of integrating it into a solution? There's lots of ways of going about that, but unless we understand the central truth of what happened historically, I don't think we come to a reasonable discussion about present-day solutions. Take Lincoln, which you also mentioned, and that line, ambivalence had consequences. Lincoln was completely ambivalent about whether he wanted to take any actions that would dismantle and disrupt slavery. Most people think Lincoln freed the slaves. That's the popular notion, I mean, right? That's what you learn in school. But no one ever bothers to actually read the Emancipation Proclamation. Read it. It's not my words. It's in the words of that proclamation that it's so clear that Lincoln did not free a single slave under his control under the Union's control. The only slaves he freed were those in the control of the Confederacy, who never recognized his authority anyway. So in truth, the Emancipation Proclamation did not free a single individual. And in fact, even after the issuance of the proclamation, you could still have slaves in Delaware and other places, but they were considered to be part of the Union. And, you know, again, I'm not the first person to say this, but I wanted to highlight this as part of this discussion of how you really have to look at the promises of this country based upon the actualization of how those promises then are actually put into play. We just need to look at what's happened over the weekend. And here we're in right before Christmas. And now you have the president who would like to um, put forth uh, an agenda, build back better uh, agenda, and you have a single senator taking a stance against that. Now, look, the idea of building back America better is another way of simply saying freedom dues. And in this case, not only will people of color, black and brown individuals benefit from building back America, but poor whites will benefit as well, too, and yet you have a senator from West Virginia, Joe Manchin, who refuses to even allow that to take place. Hey, this is what's so interesting to me, having written of uh, Blood and Sweat, and readers can see there that the position that Joe Manchin has actually taken as oppo- opposing himself to the good interests of poor whites, people of color, has this incredible historical precedent where those who are in positions of power and wealth in this country will do everything in their power to make sure that those who are not in positions of power and wealth stay in that position, stay in those conditions which don't allow them to generate and build the wealth and the power that they need. You know, you see that in this country right now. It didn't start yesterday it didn't start 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 50 years ago that equation of individuals and power and wealth keeping others from that power and wealth that started with the founding of the colonies and simply worked its way into the founding of the country i wanted to tell that story i wanted to tell it yes from the point of view of enslaved individuals and people of color but i also tell that story throughout in terms of all Americans who are disenfranchised. That history is there. And I think it's an incredibly important story to tell today because it does form the basis of the conversation we are having about not just racial equity, but the 1% versus the 99% and the redistribution of wealth in such a way that everybody in this country has the opportunities to feed, not just the 1%. That
1: was a big mic drop moment, Claude.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. I mean, I do feel passionate about it. It's one of the reasons I wrote of Blood and Sweat. I want to stimulate conversation. I don't know that I I know for a fact that I don't have all the solutions but I do know that you don't proceed going forward unless you know where you've come from looking backward. And unfortunately in this country uh and in many modern western democracies we kind of have this sense that Sam Cooke told us about in that wonderful song where he's saying don't know much about history, uh, there's a certain pride with that. And I think that's an unfortunate pride. We need to learn a lot more about history so we don't end up walking through the same uh, roads that we've walked through in the past unsuccessfully.
1: That's the goal. That's the big goal. So thank you so much, Clyde, for all of that, this book. Your wealth of knowledge and how much you impart on the community at large. Thank you so much.
2: I appreciate that. And thank you, uh, Jennifer, for taking the time uh, to sit down with me and have this discussion.
1: So, for listeners of Blood and Sweat, Black Lives and the Making of White Power and Wealth by Clyde W. Ford is out from Amistad, an imprint of HarperCollins Publishers, on April 5th. And so, I hope pre order. I hope you order multiple copies (laughs) and uh, we look forward to so many more conversations and please reach out to Clyde to bring him in for conversations as well, because as you've heard, he knows what he's talking about. And we're very honored to have him as part of the Amistad family.
0: Thank you for listening to the Library Love Fest podcast. For more information on this week's episode, go to librarylovefest.com. Enjoying the show? We would love to hear what you think. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Library LoveFest and on Instagram at Harper Library. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share the show with a friend. Lastly, if you enjoy our show, we bet you'll enjoy all of the other podcasts from HarperCollins Publishers. Find a list of shows at harpercollins.com forward slash podcast. See you next week.